And praise the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going to start in John chapter 14. By the way, let me just say I know that I went a long time during the <clears throat> earlier part of the church, or earlier part of the service, and I considered that as taking away from my preaching time. So I know what time it is. <laughs> you can tell that not everybody is aware of that sometimes. You'll see people squirm. They'll look at their watches. They'll wait for you to look at them, and then they'll look at their watch. But I know what time it is. All right, John chapter 14, verse 1. I want to tag on to some things that I said last week. If you were here with us, hopefully you remember some of it. But um, I believe that we can talk about things this morning so that it will be complete and able to stand on its own as well. John chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, when he was at uh, this last supper with his disciples, said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, folks, we talked about this a little bit. Where it says, in my house, my Father's house, there are many mansions. The word mansion means dwelling place. I shared with you a little bit about how in the the Southern Baptist Church that I grew up in as a kid, I got the idea, and I'm not going to put it off on them. Maybe it was just wrong thinking on my own part uh, as I was in my youth. But somehow or another, I got the idea that Jesus was coming back for the church. The rapture would take place when he finished building everybody's house. Well, that's so stupid, it's not even worth talking about. But that's not what Jesus is referring to. Jesus is not talking about coming back in the rapture. When he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am there you may be also. Notice he didn't say, so you can be where I'm going. He doesn't say, so you can be with me together where I'm going. Now we know where he's gone to and is is the right hand of God. The Bible says he's seated at the right hand of God. The reason he's seated is because the work is finished. Well, the Bible tells us that we are also seated with Christ in heavenly places. But that's not even what he's talking about here either. When he says, so that where I am, you may be also, he's talking about making a place for you and me in the family of God. He's talking about making a place, a position for you and for me in righteousness. And the coming back he's talking about or refers to is not the rapture. It's the resurrection. Romans chapter 4, the last verse of the chapter, I think it's about verse 26, somewhere around there. Last verse in the fourth chapter of Romans says that Jesus was delivered for our offenses and he was raised for our justification. Now that's true. No question about it. That is a true statement. But that's not what the language implies. Where it says he was raised for our justification, that indicates a cause. Well, that is the cause that he went to the cross without question. But the word for is, the word, is a word relative to time. It would be better translated, he was delivered for our offenses and raised when we were justified. In other words, Jesus did whatever is necessary to pay the price, to suffer the penalty and suffer the judgment for all of mankind, all of man's sins, for Adam's original sin included. And that when that price was paid, Jesus was born again from the dead and raised up 
and came back to the earth to get his body. He appeared to his disciples. He told them, I'm back just like I told you I was coming back. We uh, read over in Matthew chapter 16 how that after Jesus questions the disciples about who do they say he is, who do people say he is, and who do you say I am. It says after Peter identified Jesus as the Christ, it tells us specifically that Jesus clearly taught them, plainly spoke to them about going to Jerusalem, being taken captive, dying on the cross, and being raised again from the dead. He didn't try to hide it from them. So that when he's talking to them here at the Last Supper, he's trying to comfort them. They're all on Twitter about him going away. Where are you going? What do you mean you're going away and coming back? That's what he tried to tell them and plainly teach them about his death, burial, and resurrection. So when Jesus says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come back so that where I am you can be also. He's saying, I'm going to go pay the price so that you can be in, stand in the righteousness of God in fellowship, relationship and fellowship with your father just like I am. Let me prove that to you. You remember over in uh, John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, Nicodemus, which was one of the Jews, one of the Jewish leaders, came to him by night and said, Master, we know that you are come from God because nobody can do these miracles that you do except God be with you. You remember how Jesus answered him? Jesus answers him very specifically, very directly. He said, except you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, is Jesus changing subjects? Nicodemus is talking about miracles and God being on Jesus because of the miracles. That's the proof that he has. That's how he knows. Jesus says, except you be born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus would not be so rude as to not reply or respond to the statement that Nicodemus made. He's very simply saying the new birth is the entrance into the family of God. The new birth is the entrance into the realm of the supernatural, even the miraculous. Well, what does the new birth provide for us? 2 Corinthians 5.21 or five twenty one says that God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. How are we made righteous? Through the new birth. So the place that he's preparing for them and us, the place he has prepared is a place or a position of righteousness. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he takes away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. The word purge is the word clean. Remember, Jesus washed the disciples' feet and said, now you're clean. He says further on in John's, uh, the 15th chapter of John, he says, you're clean through the word that I've spoken to you. The purging is not suffering. It's not some tragedy or terrible thing that God brings on to you to see how you can handle it, to make you stronger. That's not the way it works. God reprimands us through his word. He reproves us by his word. He chastises us by his word. He encourages us by his word. And that's what he's talking about. He said, now every branch that bears fruit, he purges or cleans it that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Notice verse verse 4, abide in me. The word abide means to dwell in or to stay. He's saying stay in me. Stay in me. Abide in me. 
and I in you, except as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can you except you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He that abides in me, and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. I want you to recognize we didn't look at it in chapter 14, but we talked about it some last week. Further down in the 14th chapter of John, it says, whatever you call for or ask or require in my name, I will do it. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Here he's talking about a place of authority in just the same way. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. This is what glorifies God the Father. That you receive that which you call upon me to do, that's what bearing fruit looks like. Now folks, again in my Christian experience, I hope this is not the same for you, but I think it's the same for everybody. But in my Christian experience, the hardest thing that I've had to accept or take hold of by faith and dwell in or abide in, stay in, is the righteousness of God. That is the one subject that the devil has beat me up about more than any other thing. And he always uses the same tactics, and that is to show me where I have failed. And, of course, the the idea or the understanding would be, how can you be righteous if you're sinning? How can you be righteous if you're doing unrighteous things? And, folks, this isn't new. This is what Paul experienced, too. Paul talks about the same thing. Now, let's talk about sin for a minute. The Bible talks about sin as being both a noun and a verb. There's an act of sin. But there's a thing called sin. For example, Adam's sin is a thing. We didn't commit it. It wasn't any action on our part that brought it into being. It's a thing. And the Bible tells us that Jesus died for the sins of the world. The sins of the world, transgressions and iniquities. The sins of the world encompass both actions of sin and this thing called sin. Now, the word sin is pretty much the same word used throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament. The word sin really has three major meanings. It means to stumble. It means to miss the mark. And it means to offend. Or if it's talked about as a noun, offense. Now, folks, there's a big difference between stumbling and falling. You've seen me stumble on the platform numerous times. I'm always walking. Sometimes I'll get my foot caught or something like that. But you've never seen me fall. There's a huge difference between stumbling and falling. And it is as if sin is a two-sided coin. Paul talked about, well, turn with me over to Romans chapter 5. Let me set this up a little bit better before I go to it. Romans chapter 5, Paul identifies some things about sin that, honest to goodness, I don't think many Christians ever get in their life. 
They can. It's available to them. But remember also, we talked about this last week, referred to it last week, John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Jesus said to the Jews that believed on him, these are believers, we would consider them to be Christians. Now, they weren't Christians because he hadn't yet been raised from the dead. They couldn't be. But they were in the highest state of belief or faith that you could operate in until Jesus went to the cross and was raised from the dead. So it says that Jesus spoke to the Jews that believed on him. A lot of these were Jewish leaders. He said to them, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. First thing I want you to recognize, Jesus made a distinction between believers and disciples. He tells what makes the difference. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And then as a result of continuing in the word, then you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. Now where do believers fall into that? They believe, they're saved, they're in the body of Christ, but they experience very little victory in their lives. Because victory, the victory that Jesus purchased for us comes only through continuing in the word. Because only when we continue through into the word or continue in his word, abide in him, he's the word made flesh, that would be the same thing as abiding or dwelling in the word. That brings us to a place where we know the truth. And the knowledge of the truth makes us free. Now get this, the knowledge of Jesus being the son of God crucified and raised from the dead is not what makes you free. Now it brings you into the family of God. In that sense, it makes you free from spiritual death. But you can be free from spiritual death on your way to heaven and never experience the victory that Jesus purchased for us, the entirety of the victory that Jesus purchased for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. Because that comes through the word. Remember Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it, the gospel, the word of God, is the power of God unto salvation. Now that word salvation means to rescue, deliver, make safe, make sound, and whole, and make whole or heal. It says the word of God is the thing that brings us into all of those aspects or characteristics or facets of what Jesus purchased for us through his suffering as our substitute. We shouldn't be surprised that the church is filled with people who experience little or no victory in their lives. We shouldn't be surprised at that at all. And we all know that there's not some magic wand that is waved over us as soon as we're born again and everything turns out great and wonderful the rest of our lives. And many Christians stumble over this. Many Christians stumble because they say, how can I be living in this bondage? How can I not be free in so many areas of my life when the Bible says Jesus set me free? Answer simple. They're not continuing in the word. Because continuing in the word brings you to the knowledge of the truth of what Jesus has done for you. And it's only with the knowledge of that truth that you can apply it, take hold of it, and possess it. Are you with me? Romans chapter 5, let's start in verse 12. <clears throat> Wherefore, as by one man, talking about Adam, sin entered the world, and death passed of, and death by sin. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. He's talking about spiritual death. By one man's sin, one man's action, it's talking about Adam. Sin entered the world. And death by sin, and so death has passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Notice verse 13. For until the law of sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Keep that in your mind. I'm going to explain that in just a minute when we read down a little further. 
Nevertheless, death, spiritual death, reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is a figure of him that was to come. He says sin or spiritual death reigned over all of us, even though we didn't commit Adam's sin. Keep that in mind. We did not commit Adam's sin, but we were bound by his sin. We became recipients of the bondage of spiritual death that came because Adam sinned. Adam's action brought this thing called spiritual death upon us, and it reigned over all of mankind. But not as the offense so also is the free gift. For if, literally since, through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man Jesus Christ, has abounded unto many. And not as it was by the one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation. Adam's sin brought condemnation on the world. But the free gift is of many offenses under justification. That means the total price for sins, original and current, have been paid by Jesus. For by one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Notice the place or the connection between reigning or having authority in the earth and righteousness. Let's consider something. The Bible tells us that when Adam and Eve were tempted in the Garden of Eden, the devil came specifically, he came with some questions. He had, the first question he asked was, has God said you shall eat of the fruit of the tree of every, fruit of every tree in the garden? First thing he questions is God's word. He wants to know what Adam and Eve's knowledge of God's word is. Folks, the word of God has been important since the beginning. Adam and Eve were created in the image and likeness of God. God breathed his own spirit. He breathed himself into Adam's body and Adam became a living soul or a living being. What was Adam? Adam was placed in charge of everything God had made. He was literally the God of this world. Satan had no place. He had no position. He had no standing whatsoever. Satan being a thief had to borrow a body the body of the serpent, to even interact with man. Because man is on such a different plane and such a different level, such a higher plane and higher level than the devil himself. Adam had, or Satan had to come in as a thief to interact with Adam. He had to commission some physical form because it's your body that gives you authority on the earth. It's your body that makes you the person that God intended for you to be here on the earth. Jesus is not here on the earth anymore. Jesus delegated authority to the church. He said, all power, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. I'm going to heaven. You take care of it in the earth. That's what he's doing there. He's delegating to them. He said, go make disciples of all men. In other words, because you've been made righteous, I now confer upon you the same authority that I was conferred upon me, Jesus, by the Father God when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. Now you have that authority. Go do in the earth the same thing that I did. Remember he said, 
The works that I do shall you do also, and greater works than these shall you do. How in the world can we do greater works than Jesus? Because he made us righteous just like he was himself. All we need is to recognize the power of the anointing of the Holy Ghost for whatever God has for us to do and do it. That doesn't mean I have power and authority over everything. I've got power and authority over the things God has commissioned me to do. You've got power and authority over whatever God has commissioned you to do. And nobody can take that from you. You can give it away. You can fail to operate it in it. You can fail to operate in it or fail to recognize it. But nobody can take it away. Verse 17 again. For if since by one man's offense, Adam's action, death, spiritual death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Now, folks, it says many shall be made righteous. It doesn't say many shall recognize that righteousness. That's up to you. But the Bible is very clearly stating, identifies in most, the most clear terms that he can. The righteousness of God that Jesus made available to you, that is yours. Not because of anything you did, not because of anything you can do, but because it's the righteousness of God, God's attitude of grace and favor and mercy and compassion upon us brought us into his family based on Jesus' work. And since it wasn't your work that got you righteousness, the only thing you did was believe. The only thing you did was believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and confessed him as your Lord and Savior. That's it. That's all you and I have ever been able to do regarding righteousness. And because it didn't come by our actions, it can't be taken away because of our actions. Verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Remember I told you to keep in your mind that verse, in, uh, verse 13. Let me read verse 12 again to get the context. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law of sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. That simply means the people that lived between Adam and Moses were held guilty because of Adam's sin and the spiritual death that passed upon them. But since there was no law of God given, then sin could not be imputed. That sin could not be imputed any other way. Because there is no standard to live up to. Remember, sin is to stumble, miss the mark, or offense. There's no mark without the law. There's no mark to miss. So he's saying spiritual death reigned over all of mankind. But sin didn't. Because without the law, there is no imputation of sin. You can't be a lawbreaker without a law. So down again in verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. You know what the Bible says the law was for? There's one reason why the law was given. The law was not given so that it could bring man back to God. The law was given so that man would see he can't get back to God. And therefore he needs a Savior. That's the whole purpose of the law of Moses. 
That's everything that the law was intended to do. It was a constant reminder. It was a daily reminder that without the blood of Jesus, you cannot gain your place back with God. So what dominated their thoughts? Sin. But folks, once Jesus Jesus came, once he paid the price and was raised from the dead, our focus is not supposed to be on sin anymore. Our focus is supposed to be on what Jesus paid for, for us. Verse 21, that as sin reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ. Skip with me over to chapter 7. I don't want to go to a, a lot of chapter 7. But I do want to hit some high spots. Chapter 7 of Romans is Paul, who's the one that tells us more about righteousness than anybody else. Here's Paul explaining his Christian experience. Now, the reason that the book of Romans, in, in my thinking, at least one of the reasons why the book of Romans is so important is because this is the only place that Paul ever wrote a letter to that he had not been in established churches first. He says himself that he intended to go to Rome several times but was hindered to do so. And I, in my thinking, that turned out to our advantage because, for example, the Bible tells us that he went to Ephesus Spent three and a half years in Ephesus. And he established the church. He did signs and wonders and miracles. But what did he teach? The book of Acts doesn't tell us. The letter that he wrote to the Ephesians gives us a summary of the doctrine that he might have covered. But the book of Romans is such that Paul is starting from scratch trying to explain to the people what they may or may not have heard. The church has started some way or another. He identifies Aquila and Priscilla as part of the the, uh, ministry operation in Rome. But he doesn't know of a certainty. He would probably have greater certainty with uh, the people that had been shepherded by Aquila and Priscilla or maybe some others that he knows. But there are churches all over Rome. He doesn't know what these people know or don't know. He doesn't know what they've been taught. He doesn't know what their foundation is. And so what does he do? In my opinion, Paul is using, telling us, revealing to us in the book of Romans the things that he taught to the other churches that we wouldn't know without this letter. And one of the things that he identifies in the book of Romans is his own personal struggle with righteousness. He tells the people, I want to do right from my heart. From my heart, I serve God. From my spirit, I serve God. But I find my flesh doing things that I hate. I find my flesh leading me into things that I despise. What is he saying? He's saying I've stumbled over sin. I've stumbled over sin. Sin is a two-sided coin. There's a temptation or an influence of the devil to succumb to temptation. And that's what Paul identifies in chapter 7. He's saying, I can't stand this conflict that's going on. And what did Paul do to overcome the situation that he was in? He came to the knowledge that the sin was in his flesh and not in the real him, the man on the inside. So he tells us about the struggle that he has. I want to do the right things, but those are not the things I catch myself doing. I don't want to do the wrong things, but the wrong things are the stuff that I do. 
So he says, he concludes this. Verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death or the body of this death? Let me read this to you from some other translations. One in particular I want you to see. For the sake of time, I'll just do the one. What a wretched man I am. This is the International Standard Version. Who will rescue me from this body that is infected by death? I like that. Who shall rescue me from this body that is infected by death? He's asking a question. It's a real question. He's saying, who's going to deliver me? Now, Paul's saved. Paul's in the ministry, and he's talking about the struggle that he has with his flesh. It's not a sin to be tempted, folks. And clearly, he's falling to to this temptation. Clearly, he's stumbling, at least on occasion. So he comes to the conclusion, I cannot do this on my own. I cannot do this without some help. Who's going to deliver me? Next verse. Verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. The mind, he's talking about the spirit. But with the flesh, the physical body, the law of sin. Chapter 8. Paul didn't write in chapters and verses any more than we do. Chapter 8 continues with his response to the realization that Jesus delivers us from this body that's been infected by death. So what does he say? He says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Why? Why is there no condemnation? Now get what he's saying. He's saying, When I stumble, I'm not condemned. I've said twice now, there's two sides to to the sin coin. The first side is the influence that the devil brings against us to stumble over temptation or to stumble into sin. The other side is who you are, not just what you did. Paul says, Jesus delivers us from this conflict, from this war that's going on between our spirit and our flesh. Why, Paul? Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. He says there's a spiritual law. There's a spiritual law. Folks, spiritual laws always work. Just like the laws of physics always work. He's saying there's a spiritual law that always works. What is this spiritual law? He calls it the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. But what results when we ask Jesus into our heart and the life of God comes into us? Righteousness. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is the law of righteousness. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying the two sides of righteousness. I stumble into sin, but I never let it tell me who I am. I may stumble into sin, but I will never stumble into unrighteousness because I've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. That's the two sides of sin. Now, how does the devil operate? The devil influences you you to sin. He tempts you to sin. And then once you sin, he tells you what a terrible person you are. He tells you that you're unrighteous. And if you weren't unrighteous, you wouldn't have sinned. So he's responsible for the influence of the stumbling into sin. And then he wants to tell you who it makes you to be. Paul discovered the two sides of the issue. He said, I may stumble into sin, but I will never let it tell me that I'm unrighteous. Because righteousness does not come by what you do or don't do. 
righteousness comes because of what Jesus has done. Righteousness does not come by what you do or don't do. Righteousness comes by what Jesus has done. Righteousness does not come by what you do or don't do. Righteousness has come because of what Jesus did. That's the great discovery. That's the discovery that changed everything for Paul. It's the discovery that should change everything about us. Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The Bible talks about a lot of things that happen for a righteous man. Let me go back to the beginning. Remember when Adam was in the Garden of Eden, God made his body. He breathed into him the breath of life. He became a living soul or a living being, and God gave him authority over all the works of his hands. What did God intend? God's purposes and his plans never change. He's always the same. He changes not. What was God's intent? What do we see from the way God created the the earth and the uh, authority that he gave Adam, the way that he operated? What do we see about Adam? We see without question God intended and still intends for righteous men to rule over his creation. We can't just say God wills for all of man to rule over his creation. God gave authority to all men, but God, because he desires and would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, God has intended for and provided for righteous men to rule the earth. Now, a righteous man that was empowered by the Holy Ghost is the example we see in Jesus. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. Because it all starts with righteousness. Righteousness is the foundation for authority. It's the foundation for power. It's the foundation for everything God intended for you to do. Righteousness. What's the one thing the devil cannot fight against? Righteousness. What's the one thing he wants you not to see? And once you see it, he wants to try to take from you. Righteousness. Because when you can turn around and say, I'm righteous... Because of the blood of Jesus. What's his defense for that? He can't say that Jesus didn't die. He can't say that Jesus didn't shed his blood for you. And since that's the foundation, that's the reason, that's the cause or the origin of your righteousness and mine, where's his defense? If you won't buy into his claim that you're unrighteous, he can't control you. He cannot control you. I mentioned last week, now I want to mention it again, an article I saw within the last couple of months by a guy that um, he's in his 60s now and he would identify as someone that would call themselves transgender nowadays. Of course, 30 years ago, 40 years ago for him, 30 or 35 years ago, I guess, when he felt like he was a woman trapped in a man's body and he went through all the sexual reassignment surgeries and operations and everything that was available at that time. I don't know if it's the same now as as then. But now in his 60s, he said, he wrote in this article, he said, nothing that I've ever tried to do, none of the surgeries I had, none of the, the actions that I took, none of these things have been able to mask the reality that I'm a man. He said, I realize with everything that I've done, think of the tragic 
circumstances of this guy's life. He's ruined his life. He gave his life away. He said, I've never been able to escape the knowledge that I was always a man. Now, let me ask you a question. Did having some sexual reassignment surgery change him from being a man to a woman? Not according to him. Did dressing up like a woman change the fact that he was born a man? Not according to him. The tragedy of this guy's life is that he never recognized who he really was. And folks, I got to tell you, I see the greatest spiritual application in this story. As tragic as it is, I see so many Christians that never come to the place that God has for them because they never recognize, they never acknowledge that they are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Did you find 2 Corinthians yet? Notice chapter 5, verse 7. 17, I'm sorry. Paul's writing by the Holy Ghost, and he says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, the old things that passed away weren't physical things. Our eye color doesn't change. Our hair color doesn't change. Whether or not we have hair doesn't change. The physical body doesn't change in any way as a result of salvation. So the all things that become new, he's got to be talking about spiritual things. Well, that fits right in with the Old Testament prophecies. God said, I'll take the old heart, the stony heart out of them, and I'll put a new spirit within them, and then I'll put my spirit in that new one. Those are the all things that become new. So it says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. There's a lot of different translations that, that refer to this phrase, new creature, in a different way. We don't usually talk to understand new creature. Probably the most common translation, other translation, is a new creation. But one translation I specifically like says a new species of being. Now, folks, let me talk to you for a minute about this. I'll get back to the scriptures there in 2 Corinthians 5 because I certainly want you to see verse 21 before we close. But I want you to understand something. I was, well, that doesn't matter. The Lord said something to me not long ago. I was meditating on the fact that we've been made new creatures, specifically the new species of being. And I realized, based on some things the Lord said, the question the Lord asked me, I realized I'm trying to get back to where Adam was. Now, that'd be a great place to be, except there's sin in the world. So somehow I had the idea, or was beginning to develop the idea, or maybe just thought it because I never had really thought enough on it. But when the Bible says Jesus came to restore all things, what all things did he come to restore? He didn't come to restore us back to Adam's position. What good would that do? He came to restore something else. And here's the question that got me started on this. Here's what the Lord asked. He said very specifically, very simply this. He said, knowing what you know, if you were in Adam's place, would you sin? Now, folks, we're going to have to think about Adam a little bit. The Bible says, Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I believe it is, verse 14, he said, Eve was deceived by the devil. But Paul, but, uh, oh, what's the guy's name? Adam. Thank you. Adam wasn't deceived. Now, I don't for a minute think that means he understood all the ramifications of his action. 
I don't think for a minute he considered or understood how could he understand that it would put all of mankind in bondage for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. But folks, if Adam didn't sin because he was deceived, why did he sin? He must have recognized in order for Paul to be able to say that he wasn't deceived. He must have been able to recognize that there were severe consequences. Maybe he didn't know the extent of the consequences, but he had to know that they were severe. Then why did he sin? Now, folks, you judge this for yourself. I can't say even that God told me this. But remember the progression. Eve was tempted. Eve ate of the apple, of the fruit, and then Eve gave it to Adam. He was standing right there with her. It was only when Adam sinned that their eyes were opened. Their eyes weren't opened when she sinned. Her eyes weren't opened just by herself until he sinned. It wasn't either or. They were a package deal. Either they're going to both sin and both fall or they'll both stand. Why did Adam sin? I don't see any other way to reconcile this other than he sinned for her sake. He followed her in. The devil said to her, as God said, you can't eat of every tree, every tree. She said, he told us we could ever eat of every tree except one. In the day that we eat of that one tree, we'll die. Satan came back and said, you're not going to die. God knows that if you eat of the tree, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God himself, knowing good and evil. Now, I don't know what the attraction was for her to be like God. I mean, she's talking to a serpent. How smart would you expect a serpent to be? She already knows she's in a class of being, a class of existence that nothing else has. What's she trying to gain? What's she trying to get? What does being like God mean to her? I don't know. But that's all we're left to work with. That's all we have to work with. It has to be something along those lines. But Adam wasn't deceived. Even after she ate, he was not deceived. He knew full well this is not going to make us like God Again, I'll have to say it again. I want to say it plenty of times for you to get what I'm trying to get across. I don't for a minute believe Adam recognized the complete consequences, but he had to know that there was a consequence. So when he ate, he chose her over God. So here's the question that the Lord asked me. Knowing what you know, if you are in Adam's situation, would you sin? No, I wouldn't. Would you? Don't we already know too much to fall to that? Honey, I'm sorry, but you're on your own. <laughs> if we would not... Because of what we know. If we didn't know anything, if we didn't know what the Bible said, if we didn't know about what Jesus did for us, then we would be probably more in the dark than Adam was, and who knows what we would do. But what we know, 
what we have learned through continuing in the word has put every one of us in a place in a situation where we would not commit the same act that Adam did do you know what that means that means this new species of being is even a higher level than Adam was on let that sink in if any man be in Christ he is a new species of being Old things are passed away. That new species of being is greater than Adam. That position of righteousness through the blood of Jesus is greater than what Adam had. Old things are passed away and all things become new. And all things, these things that become new, these spiritual things are of God who has reconciled us unto himself by Jesus Christ and has given us to, unto us the ministry of reconciliation. The word reconciled is the word exchange. It means when Jesus reconciled, there was a, uh, reconciled us, there was an exchange made. We became sin. Or, I'm sorry. He became sin. We became righteous. Folks, remember all the things that the Bible talks about that are available for those who are in Christ. Think of in Christ being righteous. The things that are available to us because we're in Christ is whatever we ask of the Father, he'll do it. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Through faith, nothing is impossible to you. Those are all blessings. Those are all consequences. Those are all the things that accompany the righteousness that we've gained through the blood of Jesus. Now, if the devil can keep you from understanding righteousness, he can wipe all that out. Or maybe that's not a good way to say it. He can keep all that from coming to pass. And all things are of God who has reconciled or exchanged us unto himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of exchange. The good news is the exchange has already been made. That's what the gospel is all about. Jesus paid the price. The exchange was made. He was made to be sin for you so that you could be made the righteousness of God in him. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling or exchanging the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of exchange. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead be you reconciled unto God. Here's the exchange. Here's what the exchange is about. For he, God, has made him Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now let me leave you with one final thought. We've identified what sin is. Sin is to stumble. It's to miss the mark. Or it's an offense. The Bible talks about sin not as an equal counterpart to righteousness. Nowhere does the Bible talk about sin being on an equal basis with the blood of Jesus, which was the price that had to be paid to pay for it? Nowhere. I have to be real careful the way I say this. But sin is of such small, small significance, such little significance in the life of the modern day believer. We think sin is everything. Sin is stumbling. It's not falling down. We only fall down if we accept the fact or accept the claim that the devil makes that we're unrighteous because we sinned. 
But otherwise, sin is of little consequence in anything. So much so that John wrote to the church. I hate to even show you this scripture. Well, I'm going to have to. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 13. That will give you a chance to get there in time. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Folks, eternal life is something we have now. Righteousness starts now, not when we get to heaven. And that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. And this is the confidence that we have in Him. He's talking about the the blessings or the, the result of being in a position of righteousness. This is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. How do we know if we're asking according to his will? His word is his will. Pray the word. Claim the word. That's always his will. God and his will are one. Otherwise, Jesus could not be the word made flesh. This is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if, since, we know that he hears us, Whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Now, what reason, what foundation, what cause do we have to know that we can have all those things that we asked him? Because we know we have eternal life. We know we've been made righteous. We know we've been made righteous. Now, keep reading to verse 16. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death, and I do not say you shall pray for it. Folks, I don't, want to, I don't have a lot of time to spend on this, but I've got to make some points. The sin unto death, the only sin there is unto death, is rejecting Jesus. And John is saying, by the Holy Ghost, the only thing that you can't get forgiveness for somebody else in doing is rejecting Jesus. Anything else? You see somebody sin, you can gain forgiveness for them through your prayers. Well, hello there. <laughs> now, I only bring this up for this point, this one and only one point. Now, I, please don't come discuss this scripture with me after the service. I don't know enough about it to talk much more. But this much I do know. Reading that, knowing it's inspired by the Holy Ghost, shows me that sin is not the big bugaboo that the devil wants us to think that it is. Literally, using our analogy, he's saying if you see somebody stumble, you can gain forgiveness for them through your prayer. And the only exception he makes there is the sin unto death. The sin unto death, the only sin there is unto death. And, of course, you realize death means spiritual death. The only sin there is unto spiritual death is rejecting Jesus. That's it. So then, if we accept this as a principle to understand where sin fits in God's scheme of things in relation to importance, how important should it be for us? Now, here's the reason why you have to be careful with this. And Paul was. Paul had to be careful with it, too. He said to the Romans, the Corinthians, and also the Galatians. He also concluded, he concluded in each one of the letters that he wrote to them, he concluded, what shall we say to these things since we've been saved or delivered from sin? Since sin is simply stumbling and it's not on par with the blood of Jesus. What shall we say to these things? Shall we sin as, all, uh, as much and all we want to 
so that the grace of God can be made evident? God forbid. Let me translate that for you in modern day speak. Paul is saying, I know how this sounds. He said, I know how this sounds. It sounds like sin is not an issue. Sin is not a big deal. Don't worry about sin. Fall into sin if you want to. Don't fall into sin if you don't want to. God's the same with us, toward, same toward us, no matter which way we go. That's not what he's saying. He goes on to say in each one of those letters, he says, since we've been made righteous, pure and holy, as the translation says, since we've been made holy, we should also attain to live unto holiness. And folks, coming to this realization for me has not made me a greater sinner. It's made me more, confidence in, more confident in my righteousness. And folks, when you understand that you are righteous because you were born to be, when you understand the new birth is about making you righteous and making you the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, that's the very thing that empowers you to live over sin. But you can't really come to the place, the knowledge of your righteousness without realizing that sin is not going to keep you out of God's favor. Stumbling will not keep you from entering into the fullness of God's favor. That's the discovery that Paul made. Does any of this make sense? Even though you may stumble into sin through temptation. Never stumble. Never let it tell you who you are. In fact, the time that you do stumble into sin is the perfect time for you to declare your righteousness. That seems like a paradox, but it's absolutely the truth. For when we find ourselves having stumbled, yielded to temptation... That's the very point that the devil wants us to yield to the concept, the notion, the lie that we're not really righteous. So what do we do? Well, we appropriate everything, appropriate everything by faith. We appropriate everything of God by faith in his word, don't we? The word is believing in your heart and saying with your mouth. To confess your righteousness even after you've stumbled keeps you in the abiding power of God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you've made us righteous by the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Father, that it does not depend on us. It depended only on Jesus, and he did the work. Thank you, Father, for strengthening us through the knowledge of your word, bringing us to the place where we know who we are in Christ so that we can walk in the place you've given us to have. We declare that our position of righteousness is of God and can never be taken from us. We can never give it away and we choose to stand strong upon the truth that we are the righteousness of God in Him. We bless you, Father. We worship your holy name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for being with us. Come on back and be with us tonight for Healing School if you can. You're dismissed.